I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, welcome along to Writer's Routine. This week, we're chatting to Mark Watson, a comedian, uh, long distance going comedian as well Edinburgh Fringe hero also a pretty prolific and successful writer he's just released Contacts which is his sixth novel it's all about how technology and social media can actually help improve our lives and relationships which if you think about it is absolutely in direct contrast to a lot of other books that you're told to read at the moment it's welcome it's refreshing and it's a nice eye-opener in what actually our phones and social media can do now we talk about why he likes the bustle and the busyness when he's writing also how joke telling and storytelling are both similar and also completely different and we find out how for him unlike many authors that we've heard from the act of writing is actually what keeps him going i genuinely love it i love the, the craft of it i don't find it a grind to do it um i think and again i'm not saying i'm any better at it I, there are definitely loads of writers that are much better than me that find it harder probably because they're better they because they think more but to me it's a genuine like if i wasn't doing it publishing books and so on i'd still be doing it as a hobby it's always been one of my favorite activities regardless so i i, I look forward to writing every day in the same way that you might look forward to like going for a run or something there's more on the way with mark watson in this week's writer's routine <laughs> Yes, welcome along to Writer's Routine. My name's Dan Simpson. Thank you so much for listening. This is the podcast where we take a look inside an author's working day to see how they get that that mysterious kind of magic done. And what are you reading at the moment, by the way? We never really, we're so focused on the work and the nitty gritty of how you actually write that we never really talk about what you are reading when you have written. Um, my resolution for 2020 was to read 20 books. Now, don't judge me about that. I'm a desperately slow reader. And if you think as well, for, for a lot of the time, for most of these interviews, I'm reading about half, half, two thirds of a book for an author that I'm chatting to, and they don't count towards the final list. So I've done all of those. Um, I've also done 18 for this year. 18's okay, I think. I tend to go through mad rushes and slow burns depending on what I'm reading. How are you getting on? Uh, like, for instance, during lockdown one here in the UK, I became absolutely obsessed uh, with Malcolm Gladwell, Outliers. Have you read Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell? One of the best non-fiction books I think I've ever read. Absolutely burned through those. Then after that, I read Wolf Hall, uh, which is fantastic. Hilary Mantel. It is a little bit of a slow burner, though. Uh, you take time. 
pouring over all the words and and how it's formatted. Uh, so that took me a while. Now I'm on my 18th, which is um, PG Woodhouse. Can't go wrong with PG Woodhouse. I think during a second lockdown in the middle of autumn, there's just some magic in there. I'm reading Laughing Gas. So that's me. I mean, how have you done? How, how has your book reading gone this year? Uh, if you've done well, I hope it's included some of the guests that we've chatted to on the show. Maybe you'll put the new one from Mark Watson on the list. Uh, he's on the show this week. He's a brilliantly successful comedian known for marathon shows where he's on stage for like 24, 48 hours at a time, raising loads of cash for charity as well. Uh, his new book is Contact. It's all about James Chilton, who sends a message to his contact book on his phone saying that he plans to end his life. Then he sticks it on airplane mode. And then for those people he's texted, they have to work together to find out what's happened. It's one man's last journey, 158 chances to save his life. It was inspired by his own mental health addictions, drinking too much, his marriage coming apart too. Now, he believes that digital communication, tech and social media, they were his salvation during that time. Now, we talk about this and also how the idea came to him pretty much fully formed how much he plans as well, why he likes to give the story a good going over at first. You can also hear about his staunch font opinions. We'll begin to that at the moment. I've been doing this podcast for like three years and only in the last couple of months have I realised the trove of joy that is someone's font opinions. We hear about that, why he mixes them up between and sometimes even during his books. And we also talk about writing when you're touring on the road. So that's on the way. Let's get into it straight off then with Mark Watson and what he sees around him in the place where he sits down to write. Well, I'm fortunate to have, um, I mean, this is a this is a rented place, but it's quite a large um, house. And I've got a little attic, basically, that I write in, which means that I can, um, like as we speak, I'm looking out over people's gardens, the, the gardens of my next door neighbours, if that doesn't sound too creepy. And um, I... I've always liked to, where possible, write in um, high up spots. I like looking out uh, over, you know, cities out of a hotel room, for example, or I like seeing stuff happening, basically. A lot of writers seem to, um, when I read about them, they seem to like to sort of shut themselves away. They'll often retreat into nature or, you know, isolate themselves. But I, I kind of enjoy being able to see activity. I find that more stimulating mentally for writing getting quite introspective early on why why do you think that is why is i mean as a comedian you're always in front of people performing like that and you do you know ludicrously long 24 hour shows where you're seeing people being stimulated like that all the time um why do you think that's what gets you going yeah well good question it might just be force a habit it might just be that as a as a stand up i'm so used to um being around activity and life as you say that that's what comes naturally to me um but I, th- I think it's more than that. I think I am like I've always been kind of a city dweller. I'm not much, not much of a sort of um, nature uh, appreciator compared with some people. I think what does what gets my brain uh, active is other people, what they do, what they. I mean, I can't see anyone at the moment. There's, there's not one person out in the garden doing something fun for me to spark off, which is quite selfish of them, really. Um, nobody's on that. No one's bands on a trampoline. No one's shoveling leaves. But just in general, these tiny rituals that make up people's lives, I think they're what make me feel alive. I just enjoy the feeling of being part of a huge kind of puzzle of other humans. So it's something to do with that. I think it's something to do with enjoying being part of um part of a game. Whereas if you know when I'm in a um a, like a hotel room or something, I can see 
I mean, it's a bit different these days because no one can really go anywhere. <laughs> but in normal times, if I can see trains going in and out of stations or just the, the bustle of human routines, that makes me really happy. Whereas um, just looking at a mountain or something, I'd think, well, that's very pretty, but um, somehow wouldn't get my brain going in the same way, I think. Now, you, that's looking outside of your window. Take us into the room, also an attic, which seems as a writer, quite a romantic place to, to get your words down. Uh, tell us what you can see around you. What have you got on the walls? What's kind of sparking inspiration there? Yeah, it is quite romantic. It's, you know, it's not the way I necessarily planned it. It just happens that this place has a um, this upstairs room. I mean, it's a, it's a, it does serve as a spare room if visitors are here, but um, obviously I see it as my writing space. And now, now we can't have visitors anymore. <laughs> I've reclaimed it um, almost as if I engineered this whole thing. Um, I don't have a lot of stuff on the walls. There's a picture of the Clifton Suspension Bridge in Bristol, which is where I come from. Um, there are a couple of other framed uh, sort of pictures and stuff. And then there's a handful of um, bits and pieces like, uh, I mean, one or two books, but quite a minimal number, one or two papers. I keep it fairly sparse here. I don't. I would find it hard to write uh, surrounded by hundreds of other books. Sometimes, again, I'm always interested in what other writers get up to, especially more kind of distinguished ones. And often you, you see a picture of their study and there's it's just wall-to-wall volumes. But I think I'd find it slightly intimidating if every time I stopped between sentences I glanced up to see all the books people had already finished off. Are there any of your own works there that, that let you know that you can do this when th- perhaps you're at a low ebb? Huh, it's interesting uh, you should say that. I... I um. I do currently have the my new book in front of me just because uh, it worked out that way. I had to, um, I think I was doing chatting about it and I had it to hand so I could read a passage or something uh, last week. But that's um, that's just a fluke because it, it came out recently. Normally I don't have the other books within sight. I, I think it might be, I don't know if it's deliberate or not, but I sort of feel like, um, I mean, in a lot of ways it would make complete sense to do, to do that, just as you said, to have them there as a kind of confidence boost. But um I tend to, once I'm starting a new book or or working on anything, I tend to try and forget what's gone before, basically. The books, it's satisfying to have the books out there, but I don't really draw on that thought. So I think, yeah, weird as it might sound, I kind of distance myself mentally from the books as soon as they're out. So generally, I don't write with any... I do have them all. Um, I'm not that Spartan. I've got got them all on a a shelf uh, downstairs altogether, but it's quite a high shelf, so people can't... um, necessarily see them i think it'd be weird if you walked into my house and immediately saw like a shrine to my own work <laughs> yeah uh, i have been to some writers houses though and you would not be surprised at how often that is actually the case yeah i find it satisfying to have them all i've also got a few foreign language copies for the couple of books that are bit, like it's nice to have them as objects and i do i do take some satisfaction and pride from looking at them without doubt but um i don't want I don't want that to be in other people's faces you have to look quite hard to find them if you're a visitor <laughs> Now, this might seem incredibly niche and, and uh, geeky to you, but uh, we like to know what you're writing on. So on the desk, uh, are, you, are you laptop? What software are you using? Go ahead with all that. Well, this is a this is a Mac um, that I'm uh, talking to. And this is what I always write on. For, until a few years ago, I was a PC person. Um, I, was, I made the switch to Mac because loads of people kept telling me to. And they were right, I think. Um, and I've always worked on a computer um, writing wise since I was a student, basically because um, 
well, among other things, I'm left-handed and my pen grip is really torturous. It's horrible to watch and it's quite painful to actually do it. <laughs> uh, exams at university used to absolutely kill me. So I, I, for a long time, um, I've been, you know, some people, uh, some writers will talk about the, the purity of writing everything longhand and for that, but that's never appealed to me because it takes me absolutely ages to do that. I would only ever have got one novel finished in my life if I had to write it out by hand, I think. Whereas typing, I learned to do quite quickly quite early so I don't really hold with the idea that um typing stuff out is in some way less yeah pure or poetic than writing I think whatever allows you to express yourself as well as possible is the way to do it this said though I suppose I'm old-fashioned in some ways because I use word and um uh, most writers talk about more up-to-date writing packet they've all got packages that like Scrivener is it or um yeah no it it it's Scrivener, and I'll and I'll emphasise that because they've sponsored the show many times. <laughs> there you go. Oh, absolutely nothing against Scrivener. Uh, I I just have never progressed beyond Word because, uh, I suppose quite simply because I know exactly how to use it. I know everything that it does, and I don't think that I have any needs beyond that. And I am quite a, uh, a stick in the mud. I sometimes with uh, scripts and stuff. I've occasionally do screenwriting. For that, I do use Final Draft, um, which is a great tool which i was i taught myself to use laboriously but this is the thing i'm quite bad at learning to use new stuff so if i was to use something else other than word and it took me a while to master it i'd quickly become grumpy about it <laughs> and getting even niche just just lastly on on your writing space uh, what are your opinions on font mark um i do have some opinions on this actually i um i, I tend to uh use a different font every time i've got a couple of favorites uh like um well there's one called georgia i think quite fond of garamond um but i basically uh i I do it's quite interesting the font thing i um uh i tend to firstly use a different font every time because um somehow that makes it feel more like a different project to me like a new star um but also i'll quite often change the font midway through a piece of work because uh someone told me that doing that would enable me to see things more freshly and I think it's true it's just it's a tip that I don't have many uh tips that I pass on to writers because I don't generally feel like I know what I'm doing but I do think it's true that if you if you switch font and, and read again you will spot a surprising number of stuff that passed you by before I never used to ask questions about font and then a, f- a few months ago, uh, a couple of listeners got in touch and I had no idea kind of the treasure trove of quirky tips that asking about fonts would give me like that it's interesting i think it's it is much more important than you'd think really because you are staring at it for absolutely months and uh, something else i've heard people say is that you should write in the ugliest font you can write in something that looks like rubbish because then you won't be seduced by the look of it you know the the failings of the writing will sort of stare you in the face and i think that probably is a good tip as well but i haven't got the stomach to be looking at a crap font for like a year (laughs) on a day when i'm uh, not performing, touring or something, in normal circumstances, things were a lot smoother. But um, a lot of my life is taken up um, with touring. So it can go one of two ways. If I'm, let's say I have a day where all I have to do is write, what I'll tend to do is um, uh, set kind of a big chunk of time. Uh, normally in the afternoon, I've always enjoyed working late afternoon into evening getting other stuff done early in the day that needs doing, clearing that mental space and then going, sort of shutting myself away and going for it um, with a with a glass of wine. Normally, once I'm writing, I like to be, I like to write in quite long, intense periods. And 
in normal times, in, in years gone by, certainly with this book that I've just written and with the past couple, I wrote uh, quite long chunks of it in the night, in the middle of the night, because that's been a productive time for me. Um, if I'm on tour, though, if I'm gigging somewhere, things are different. Then I have to get myself together um, and perhaps write on a train or on the road, even if I'm in a tour vehicle. So, I, you know, I've got my kind of luxurious writer's routine and then a kind of pragmatic one, which I am also able to follow. I love to have the luxury of just sitting at my desk for hours at a time. But just because of my lifestyle, I've also learned to write almost anywhere. Um, and then there's a third answer, which is these days with the uh, with the pandemic and everything. And hopefully people are listening to this in happier times um, or some people. But yeah, in these times, I, I've almost flipped and I nowadays get up very early to write because that, again, is just uh, enforced. There's only a couple of hours at the start of the day when I'm likely to have complete um, freedom and quiet. So that's when I do it. So basically, I'll go wherever the piece is writing wise. What do you uh, there's a lot going on. There are a lot of different things, the three different times of the day that you find yourself writing. How do you differentiate those? Uh, y- yourself do you find that you're better at one time of the day that even though you are able to write on trains when you're gigging it- it's not as perfect as you would like it how, how do you sort those out no it- it's never as perfect it's never perfect that the closest I get to perfect um, writing conditions on a-, a train is if I'm lucky enough to be going somewhere like Glasgow or even Newcastle like a three to four hour train journey is long enough to properly immerse yourself I think um but that that is always suboptimal, and then I'll tend to top up by trying to do some time writing in the hotel um, or, or wherever I'm staying. My my ideal conditions definitely are um, to be a day when I get up and all that I have to accomplish is just write for absolutely ages is blissful to me. I never worry about motivation. I never struggle to get going. Well, I can struggle. Every writer struggles to get going, but not because of motivation or reluctance in my case I think you know my my time has been quite quite brutally short for ages for years really because of having kids and because of having another career so some people will say oh I'd love to write but I just stare at the blank page and um it's too off-putting or sometimes I just don't feel like it I I don't really I don't really feel as if I have that option if if there is a window to write in I just have to do it and that might sound a bit sort of industrial and uh joyless but I, I think it's not a bad instinct to be in if again it doesn't mean I always get anything done sometimes I'll write and it'll be rubbish or I'm stuck but I I always if I can write I will write it's basically if, the closest I've got to a rule you spoke about immersion earlier immersing yourself in in your work uh, is, is there anything that although as you've just said you are very good at just getting into it, it but is there anything that does really help you uh, get in the zone just really hone in on, on you no matter where you are uh, is there something that you can do to just switch into that mode? Um, well, good question. So again, um, people talk about uh, music a lot, and a lot of people don't write with music because um, they find that it disrupts the, the rhythm of the prose, maybe, you know, or, or they can't concentrate. Some people read aloud as they're writing, so then impossible to also have music on. But I'm quite a big advocate of having music onto I think that actually connects me with my sort of uh, writing self if I can use that phrase it can't just be anything it can't be distracting it's got to be music that I know well enough already that I'm not consciously engaging with it if I can pick the right stuff stuff that my brain already recognizes and isn't focusing on 
then for, for whatever reason that um that does seem to work for me i do quite a lot of writing in like with headphones on with quite loud music in my ears and it doesn't I don't find that a distraction. I find it sort of a stimulus. Any particular music? Well, what I'll often do is get uh, a couple of albums that I know really, really well and then play them heavily during... Like there was an uh, album by... There's a band called Grizzly Bear uh, who, for whatever reason, like two or three other albums have done the trick for me. I, I don't, it's something to do with the type of music, which is kind of quite orchestral, rich and orchestral, but not not too heavy not too for whatever reason there are a few key bands that um i'm able to uh kind of mainline their music semi-consciously and that seems to put me into a sort of mode where i myself become more creative i don't know why it is if i was to read someone else's writing i don't think that would put me in the mood to write i think i'd find it obstructed me or inhibited me in some way something about uh tapping into other people's creative brains but in unintrusive ways it seems to work for me I, I wouldn't be able to have the radio on i can I, I don't like i can't write with chatter in the background but music if it's the right music it, it can sort of carry you along i think in happier times when you have got a lot of different stuff on um how many days do you tend to write a week um it's a shame how often we need to use phrases like in happier times these days. Almost every other sentence, so many caveats these days. Uh, in a dream situation, I'll write almost every day. I don't, I'm not great at relaxing. I find if I've got a book on, my brain is always circling back to it. Even if I'm, I've got in trouble before for going on holiday or on weekend breaks and still not being able to really zone out. Um, I'd happily write every day if I could. I, um, and of course you can't, I mean, it's not very good. It doesn't make you a good person to live with. <laughs> so I don't do that, but I, it, I genuinely love it. I love the the craft of it. I don't find it a grind to do it. Um, I think, and again, I'm not saying I'm any better at it. I, there are definitely loads of writers that are much better than me that find it harder probably because they're better, They because they think more. But to me, it's a genuine, like if I wasn't doing it, publishing books and so on I'd still be doing it as a hobby it's always been one of my favorite activities regardless so I I I look forward to writing every day in the same way that you might look forward to like going for a run or something it's interesting because there is a a confliction there almost in that you you love writing you love writing you know almost romantically in if you're able to have the whole day but also you mentioned that it's quite industrial the way you work it's this need to just write let's get down let's get those words out what is the aim for how much you're working on a day have you got a word count in mind is is there a specific format in which you do it well I never set an actual word count and I'd never say 500 or 1000 words or anything because I feel like then you are just you know trying to run the clock down sort of thing then you are just trying to pile up words for the sake of it or I would be anyway um but I do take a certain satisfaction in passing those milestones. Like I don't check how much I've written um, as I'm going along very often, but if I have a break and have a look and I've done like one and a half thousand words, whatever it might be, I do feel like, okay, something substantial has been achieved here. So I suppose what I'm saying is I don't have actual targets, but I do kind of congratulate myself if there's a large uh, word count on the board. And of course, again, sometimes that, might all be rubbish that sometimes you'll write one good sentence and that's all you actually end up with especially with a novel loads of times with a novel um so little of what was your first draft actually uh, remains word for word i remember once i went on a flight to 
must have been flying to Australia. And I, but I remember the first leg was via Hong Kong anyway. And I got out of Hong Kong. I'd written something like eight eight thousand words, some insane tally like that, because I'd sim- I'd just been writing from takeoff to takeoff to landing. Um, and I was absolutely delighted with myself. But if you if you actually looked at that writing and how much of it got into the final book, I, I bet it was almost none of it. <laughs> I think sometimes with a novel, it's the psychological momentum that's important, feeling like you're pushing the story forward, pushing yourself forward, even if you know as you're getting it down that it might not be perfect by any means, that you might not actually use it. I think that's why I always say to writers, just keep putting words on paper, even if you're stuck, even if it doesn't seem like it's going well, write something because the process of that is still dragging you through this project. It's still worth doing, even if you don't think it's going well. Whereas stopping will not get you anywhere. It will just discourage you, obviously. If, once you lose momentum in a long project, very, very hard to get it back. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. We'll get back to it with more from Mark in just a sec. Very quickly before then, uh, a little reminder, if you enjoy these podcasts, if you've just found us maybe, um, and you've got like 130-odd episodes worth of tips and advice from some of the best authors around that's really helping you out, uh, if you think they're worth a few quid, a couple of dollars a month, you can help us out with that. Sign up, support us at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. That's how you help the show. You can get thanks on there. You can get a little bit of merch sent your way. You can even find a way for your book to sponsor this show. Doesn't need to be a lot. I'll be honest, a little bit awkward even chatting about it. I'm British after all. But if you do love what we do, if you want to see us carry on bringing you these chats with the best authors around as often as we can, you can help that happen by supporting us over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Let's get back to it then with this week's guest on Writer's Routine, Mark Watson, talking about his brand new book, Contacts. Uh, In this half, we talk about how much he plots and why he's afraid of spreadsheets. We also chat about tone, how how he balances the uh, the lightness of being a comic and perhaps the darkness of some of the subject matters. Uh, And we pick things up talking about the, the planning and how much an idea changes from beginning to end. The idea for this book was kind of quite a neat, clean idea. So as soon as I 
although it was still complicated to write, once I'd had the initial idea that it, it, it wasn't ever going to change enormously from first moment to last. Whereas I've written books in the past where something was wrong with the initial idea or the plan that I started out with wasn't quite right. And so then you, so I think it's partly that, partly it's about discipline, but also some ideas are, um, the two books I've written that were closest from first thought to execution were this one, Contacts, and a book called Eleven uh, from years ago. And both of those were ideas that I still had a lot of work to do between first moment and final draft, but I, the central idea didn't change that much. Whereas if you have an idea that mutates a lot as you're going along, then I don't think it matters how many times you've done it before. You're still going to be wrestling with it a lot. So I think I think you do get better at it. But the fact is when you're planning, and I do, do quite a lot of planning and plotting before I start, you still don't really know if that plan is going to stand up or if you're going to have to go, you know, rethink, start bits again, all that. So I think that affects it. I like to think I've got better at the process because it's been, as you say, a number of books and a number of years. But I still think each book is a case by case basis. Basically, you don't know till you're in it if it if it's working or not. Uh, we'll talk. To, we'll, we'll get to uh, contacts in just a sec. I'm just. Um, I'm interested in you not writing to a limit each day, and and some days you might not be able to get to write. How does that work when you are writing to a deadline? When you know that okay by november the 4th you need to have done eighty thousand words and you need to have handed that in how, how does that work how are you planning your time to make sure that you're ready to hand in then well it's very difficult um everyone knows that writing to any sort of deadline is difficult even if you're just talking about a 1000 word article or something with a novel i think uh, i mean you do need a sensitive editor you need a sympathetic editor because i don't think that you can obviously you do have to write to deadlines and with a novel there will be times where it literally is a case of on November the 4th, this is going in. But I guess you, 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 if you've got a good editor, which is absolutely essential for writing a novel and for publishing one, um, I think you have to have a relationship where you can say, look, you can have it on November the 4th, but it, not this bit won't be right. This bit needs changing. This, but, you know, I, I think it's pretty hard to, um, you know, much as I'm good at setting uh, targets and, you know, working and having a routine and stuff like that. Nonetheless, a novel is such a difficult beast. It does get away from you at times. Sometimes you have to accept you're behind where you want it to be and you're not going to resolve a problem today. You might not do it this week. So that's part of it, I think. I'm reasonably good at being disciplined and hitting goals, but I don't think novels ever cooperate with you that much. I think you have to accept that a book is going to mess with you and with your timelines quite a lot along the way. And you have to hope that whoever you're writing it for um, understands that. Luckily, they they will, because they'll have published loads of other authors who were also a shambles. <laughs> now, I've been really excited to, to, to ask you this question, because I believe you are the first comedian uh, who I've spoken to that, that's written a novel. Now, because I think you have to consider comedians one of the ultimate storytellers in that they're able to get away, you know, a, a story, a joke in, in, in just a few lines with a beginning, with a middle, with a good punchline. And they, I know that you spend a lot of time crafting that. What did writing jokes teach you about writing stories, full length novels? Well, it's interesting this because you're right. Surprisingly, not many, to me, it's surprising that not many of my fellow standups write novels are interested in it. Um, because I do think that the, the, uh, techniques are similar in a way but um 
they're almost two different crafts for me. I, I spend a lot of time on a novel honing, polishing, thinking. And most of what I do on stage is much more instinctive than that. I don't commit a lot to paper. I don't write routines out very much or jokes. I tend to just, um, I mean, I do have like bullet points or notes to work from, but I'm not very scripted as a stand-up. So they're kind of different disciplines. But one thing I certainly have learned is um, uh, economy, I think. Because as you say, with a stand-up routine, with, with a comedy show, you've got to get a story away pretty fast. You can't be messing about. You can only afford to include what is absolutely necessary for the thing to work and sometimes when i'm reading a novel uh i was talking about this with someone the other day if you read a novel that lacks storytelling focus you know it might be very prettily written but the story is um slowly or in, uneconomically told i do always think come on get on with it in the same way that you might if you watch the stand-up rambling on stage so i think that's one thing i've learned from comedy that an audience requires you to hit certain points that you can get there however you want, but you need to remain interesting. And I think that's quite a good preset for a novel. Any novel you'll find there are passages where you're just drifting. You've slightly lost sight of your obligation to make, to make it fun for the audience. And um, on stage, you can't do that. If it's not fun every minute, you'll know about it. So I suppose that's one thing I've learned. I've learned to be uh, like quick and sharp. And I try to carry that into my writing. Um, so that people are never bored now without teaching a comedian anything please um there is i ask you that because there's a brilliant video on youtube it's of jerry seinfeld you think of his with your comedy what you will but he's talking to the new york times about how he writes jokes and he shaves off syllables to make it as punchy and quick <laughs> as possible and it's absolutely fascinating um well listen the new book market it's contacts and you've already touched on the idea but we kind of always get into books in the same way. So tell me about the moment when that first idea, how vivid it was for you, how it came into your head, how did it present itself? Well, so the book is about a guy who um, threatens to end his life and sends a text announcing that uh, to his whole phone book, which is why it's called Contacts, because you know um, all of his contacts receive it, people he knows very well and people he doesn't know. And um, it was something that happened to me years ago I, I wasn't the sender but I received a sort of desperate message from someone which because of the way it was framed had obviously been sent to a whole phone book and um I at the time I helped out as best I could like a lot of people did and it was all right in the end but it did stay in my head as a, 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 I don't think I consciously logged it as a potential thing to write about um but um I uh in time I um I did kind of come to think of it as a possible novel it's it's um something that i've done quite a lot in life is perhaps all writers do filed away what seems like a good idea for a book forgotten about it and then it just kind of has its moment so then for whatever reason a couple of years ago uh this idea just forced its way back into my head and, and it just seemed like the right thing to do most books i've had uh, that i've written have been have come from an initial seed like that but which i carried around for years without even being conscious of it and then for whatever reason a day comes when you think, oh, I remember that idea. This is this is now it's time. What then happens next? You said that you're quite a thorough plotter and, and planner. And you, you've already kind of lived that story then. If, if you, you kind of helped out your mate or whoever it was that sent this desperate text. Um, uh, you've, you've already lived that. So how do you, when you have this new idea, when it comes back to you, what do you do next? What's the next stage in plotting and planning before you end up typing your first sentence? Well, uh, well, yeah, when the idea is resurfaced, I, I sort of ask myself proper 
questions about it. I think, all right, well, who is this character? What would actually happen here beyond the first 30 pages? I think a lot of the time, everyone will be familiar with this this feeling of like, oh, that would make a novel. I could write a book about that. People say that about all sorts of stuff. Um, And then what often stops, because almost anything sounds like a good, like you see someone in the street that's just, uh, dropped a load of shopping someone else helps them they shake hands you think maybe they're gonna be friends like that's a that's the seed of a novel and you could see 10 of those a day but what differentiates a good idea from a, a misleading idea is does it have actual legs what would happen next so i tend to ask myself that i uh, i think okay that's a great starting point for a book but what would happen you don't have to see every beat of the story but you need to be able to convince yourself that you could you could tell yourself a version of this story and you could sort of imagine how it play out, even if you don't know how it'll end. So that's basically it for me. I try and sketch out as much of it as I can, even if it's completely wrong, just to convince myself that it has the legs that I think it does. And that process takes weeks sometimes. I don't have to have everything plotted because I don't think you can do that. But I do like to feel that I've given the story a going over before I start trying to actually delve into it longhand it's just notes yeah i'm not disciplined enough to have a spreadsheet and i also don't really know how spreadsheets work i'm scared of them <laughs> if someone sends me a spreadsheet or an excel file or something to look over as an attachment i, I can do it but I, I don't like it um so actually i'll have notebooks i have a, i like a big sort of a i suppose it's a three notebooks i always buy the similar looking ones um normally lined likes with the sort of paper you write on in, in school don't know why but that seems to work for me and um I'll just write what I like to do actually is break up a couple of pages into boxes uh number them and then see if I can move from one box to another this is something that a uh, sort of mentor and friend of mine called Philip taught me years ago he's a theatre director rather than a writer but his thing was like any any story you should be able to write what point number one is and then what point number 20 or 30 is the end and then gradually gradually start plotting uh, the points in between and again this is a very vague process you might well not visit half those points but it's just again just to sort of convince yourself that there is a possible path between what you think is the start and what you think is the end and again I'll spend ages doing that because I like to go in to the proper writing feeling that I haven't worked out all the you can't work out all the plots all the little incidents all the stuff that makes up the novel but you if you can draw yourself a bit of a map then I think to me that's quite a useful start if I didn't go in like that I think I'd worry that after 50 pages i would have just like driven into a, a cul-de-sac with that path then um how much of it do you tend to so are you if, if it was a path that you're walking you know your lockdown walk that you're allowed to do for an hour a day or whatever um you know where you're starting do you know exactly where you're going to end up do you know how this book is going to finish do you know the midpoint to be honest no i was still trying to work out what i thought the end of this book should be um, very close to the end, <laughs> partly because this is the thing you can certainly plot the start. You can plot yourself all the way to the middle with a sort of roadmap, but um, you know, people talk, mystify the process sometimes and say, Oh, the characters start to talk for themselves. The characters take a life of their own on. And, you know, it can sound really silly when people talk like that, but it is true that by the time you've written 50,000 words of a book, it has taken on a certain momentum, which you didn't anticipate. So I, it's not quite as simple as thinking, Oh, I know what the end will be, uh, because it, six months from that point, you think, oh, I know what I know what the end was, but that doesn't quite make sense now that I understand who the characters are. So I think, you know, some writers say 
that they start with the end and work backwards, basically. So they always know where they want to get to. And it's just a matter of working out how to do that. And that fascinates me because I suppose that is optimal because then you always know what your target is. But I've never written a book like that. I've never known 100% what the end is because I think, for me, I can't know that until I know like where the book wants to go. What's interesting is that how the, 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 the premise of your plot anyway that what I was sent through seems to be a kind of almost a direct contrast of what a lot of people are saying about tech and social media at the moment yeah yeah it is (laughs) Um, so so, uh, so a lot uh, you know we're being told that screen time is bad that you know social media has made us more antisocial than ever but this book is about how digital communication is is a salvation um what do you think about that well yeah so so in the book everyone uh his his the uh suicidal character's phone is off it's switched to flight mode actually um so people can't contact him and so they have to contact one another and try and form a sort of alliance to help him and um just in the past few weeks there's been a real life incident like this where a guy put a thing on twitter saying i'm doing really badly here can anyone just say hi basically there was no more to it than that uh, but it worked. Loads of people that ne- he never knew like just jumped on in like what they call a pylon on Twitter, but the opposite, a benign pylon. <laughs> and, uh, you know, this kind of thing does happen quite a bit. Um, you know, the, the good uses of uh, social media, of the Internet, uh, and certainly can happen. And, yeah, basically, you're right. I'm interested in playing with the idea that it doesn't have to be a bad thing. Uh, you know, people tend to assume that the fact we're all on screens and devices the whole time, it, it automatically makes us more separated and atomized society. And I agree that can happen. But this book is about what would happen if we use these devices for good? What about if we started seeing technology as something to help us be in contact with each other more? And what could we then do? I wanted to ask you very quickly about tone, because this is clearly by its very nature, it's slightly dark, pessimistic at times novel. You know, it's it's quite ominous. Whereas you're a comedian uh, who's known for, you know, being funny, being up. How did you go about getting the voice right for your narrative? Um, well, it's not easy because you do find yourself talking like a comedian on the page if you're not careful. And as you say, that's not quite the right tone for this. But at the same time, there is some lightness. Um, so, yeah, it's, the tone is something that you gradually work on. You build layer on layer. I always try and not sound like the Mark Watson who's a stand-up um too much even though that might be what people are expecting from the book because i want it to sound different from that and i want to be able to unpack different themes this is an opportunity this book because of the subject matter there's an opportunity to go quite deep but also be quite light so hopefully i've managed to to straddle those things that's what i always try and do basically take on big stuff as big as i as my brain uh, can within its realm but but still have the lightness of touch of a comedian And that is it for this week's Writer's Routine. Thank you so much to Mark Watson for coming on this show. Uh, if you like what you heard, you can grab a copy of his new book, Contact, his sixth novel. Uh, I've got a link for you in the episode notes wherever you're listening and over at writersroutine.com as well. While you're there, you can get in touch with the show. Uh, drop us a line on the contact form, let us know what you're thinking. You can also do that by leaving a review over on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to help the show... Leaving a review is a brilliant way to do it. You can also support us over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Just a little goes a phenomenally long way on there, I promise. Now, next week, we're chatting to Sarita Domingo all about her new audiobook romance, If I Don't Have You. 
It's a brilliant, fun chat, a real giggle, that one. Uh, So make sure you're listening. Back next week with Sarita Domingo on Writer's Routine. I'll see you then. Bye. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out at the French Open for a chance to win a Grand Slam title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. See the action unfold as legends fight for glory and new rivalries emerge. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.